This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu. Well, hello everyone. I know many of you already, but those of you I haven't met yet, I'm Allison LaCroix, and I teach legal history, constitutional law, federal courts, and civil procedure here at the law school. My topic today is the shadow powers of Article 1, which I actually just like as a phrase, so I, I'm going to try to say it as many times as possible, because I think it has a certain evocative quality, but I also think it goes to a larger point I'd like to make about federalism doctrine. So the talk is based on a paper I recently published in the Yale Law Journal, and that was part of a symposium of some people who wanted to think about federalism in different ways from how it's conventionally thought about in commentary and by the Supreme Court. And my take on it was think, trying to think about it as something richer than the usual national power, state power dichotomy, which is helpful but only gets us so far. Another point was moving away from a state sovereignty model given that you can find lots of commentators who talk about federalism who say, well, everybody knows the states are not really sovereign. They have certain areas of autonomy, but we don't really, it's not a very helpful concept to think about it in terms of sovereignty. And so some of these other commentators emphasize things like cooperative federalism, or they say federalism is all about decentralization. I don't go that far. Um, but my take on this was to try to figure out if we could still think about federalism in a way that takes the states seriously um, as political, as juridical entities with distinct powers and identities, but that fits them into the doctrine in a way that maybe would give us more answers or tests anyway, clearer tests than we have so far. Um, and here I diverge from some of the other members of the symposium, which is interesting. You never want everyone in a symposium to agree. That's just boring. Um, where I thought that we shouldn't actually say the states are agents of the federal government. And maybe that's being a historian or, or other aspects of my work, but it was a surprise to me in a sense that some people who think of themselves as federalists also think the state should be useful to the federal government. That's their purpose. I tend to think of federalism as a species of nationalism, which is in some ways unique to America. So I'll talk more about that at the end. Uh, but the first question, what do I mean by the shadow powers of Article 1? Well, the paper was originally motivated by doctrinal developments. I'd noticed teaching Con Law 1, and those developments gained new salience after the Supreme Court decided the healthcare case, NFIB versus Sibelius, in 2012. And the doctrinal development was this. The Supreme Court seemed to be talking a lot more about the Necessary and Proper Clause and the General Welfare Clause. And so the General Welfare Clause is a kind of collective entity, but it contains, of course, the taxing power and the spending power. So these are these funny clauses that, for those of you who've taken Con Law 1, know they have this kind of strange status. They're in Article 1. One is actually Clause 1 of Article 1, Section 8. The other is Clause 18 of Article 1, Section 8. So they're sort of the head and the foot of Section 8, but they're structurally ambiguous. And it's often a question in the case law, and this has been true going back to the very early days, about how do we think about their place with the other powers of Article 1, which we tend to call the enumerated powers. The general welfare power gets kind of treated as an enumerated power, taxing and spending, okay, those are enumerated. But there's often the sense that the necessary and proper power is in this gray area. It's not really enumerated. Um, they're not, so they're not standard, but they're also not implied. So sometimes people read McCullough versus Maryland, 1819, the court's first cut it, the necessary and proper clause, and say, oh, well, these are implied powers. Well, how can they be implied if they are actually listed in the words of Article 1, Section 8? I mean, I get where they're coming from here, and I'll talk a little more about what Marshall was doing, but they're not these sort of lesser implied powers. They're in there. So another way to think of the necessary and proper power in particular, which is my main shadow power, the general welfare clause, again, taxing and spending powers are, are related but the necessary and proper power refers itself to carrying into execution the foregoing powers of Article 1. So raising armies, commerce, all those. So therefore, by its own terms, the necessary and proper clause is connected with other sources of congressional authority. So it's a funny one in that it is um, connected at some level of text and structure to the other powers. The others seem to stand on their own. So again, it's an enumerated power, but I would say the enumeration happens at a different level from the other Article I powers. 
So another way to think about it is the necessary and proper power doesn't have a subject matter or a scope restriction. It potentially touches all domains of congressional regulation. In some cases, it touches the executive and the judiciary, but it doesn't itself describe such a domain. So this sounds like a recipe for very clear doctrine, right? All of this, of course, wonderful. Um, then the, the taxing and spending powers, the general welfare clause powers, they're a little different. They are enumerated. They are independent. They don't have to be attached to some other power in the way the necessary and proper power does. We have some limits coming out of case law. It has to be in pursuit of the common defense and the general welfare, not coercive. But otherwise, it's pretty, um, it's pretty much uh, more of a straightforward application. So in Con Law 1, sometimes we diagram this, where the necessary and proper power has to be attached to one of these primary Article 1 powers. Right? General welfare, loose, pretty much stands on its own. But since 2005, so this is part of the argument in the piece, these two types of shadow power, necessary and proper and general welfare, have become doctrinal battlegrounds for the Supreme Court in federalism cases, but in a stealthy way, which makes them shadowy. Um, they, it seems like nothing's really happening or something's happening at the periphery of the doctrine. And then all of a sudden, these, these clauses are front and center, and we have to sort of ask, well, how did this happen? So I think their return to the center of the debate in the court is an opportunity to figure something out about our federal structure, something important. Um, but first, we have to kind of clear away this thicket of doctrine and, and reasoning. So the key claim that I'm making in the paper is that the court has recently shifted the terms of the federalism debate. So once upon a time, and this is what we tend to think of as the new federalism of the 1980s and 90s, starting under the Rehnquist Court, but it actually goes back farther than that. Uh, but the standard form of new federalism looked at the Tenth Amendment and said, the Tenth Amendment is a freestanding limit on what the federal government can do to the states. The Tenth Amendment is in the text, and it's a reservation of a sphere of sovereignty to the state. Um, so... What's, that's sort of the old version of Supreme Court federalism. The newer version that I think has been coming out since about 2005 focuses on what you might think of as the flip side, which is, well, what's Congress doing? So Congress regulates, and we might care about federalism in terms of what is this doing to the states? Is this interfering with some local sphere of authority? Uh, but we might also say, put, this, put aside the states for a minute. The best way to tell if there's a federalism limit here is look at Article 1. The enumeration principle is in itself a federalism principle. So here we can think of Hammer versus Dagenhart, everybody's favorite Commerce Clause case from 1918, right? I know everybody was just reading it seconds ago, but just to refresh your memory. So the majority of the court strikes down the Federal Child Labor Act and says it violates the Tenth Amendment, that this is interfering with local activities. If states want to have child labor, there's no way for Congress to reach that. But there's a dissent by, by Justice Holmes. And Justice Holmes says, I should have thought that the most conspicuous decisions of this court had made it clear that the power to regulate commerce and other constitutional powers could not be cut down or qualified by the fact that it might interfere with the carrying out of the domestic policy of any state. So another way to phrase what Holmes says is, if you care about federalism, of course we all do, the best way to, to limit or to test what Congress is doing is see if it fits within Article 1, instead of saying the Tenth Amendment is this kind of independent freestanding limit on Article 1. Uh, so now I think the court is moving back to starting its federalism analysis in a kind of Article 1 congressional power register instead of a stateside Tenth Amendment sort of trump card um, register. So this is a subtle distinction, but it becomes important. The focus of the Article 1 inquiry now is then these shadow powers. So they're looking at congressional power more, and when they look at congressional power, they look at the necessary and proper and the general welfare clause. But there's a paradox in this. So you might think oh, well, you know, Holmes, that was the leading edge of everybody basically letting Congress do whatever it wanted under the commerce power. And so this is actually another way of saying, if you look at the Article I side, you're going to basically say Congress can do whatever it wants. But that's not what's happening now. So the court is back to looking at the congressional side using shadow powers analysis, but the paradoxical result is that these clauses, which from the beginning people have seen as potentially unbounded and limitless, are actually operating as limits on congressional power. 
So this is another way in which they are shadowy. I got many questions along the way every time I presented this paper and from the editors of the law journal. In what way are they shadowy? Well, they're shadowy in lots of ways. So one is we kind of, they're structurally difficult to get a handle on, but here's the other shadowy way they operate, which is they seem expansive, and yet they are deployed by the court in a way that limits congressional power. And that's a difference from those doctrinal shifts back in the New Deal period, where people tended to say, and you still see this in the federalism literature, the reason to start with the Tenth Amendment analysis is that's the only way to get any kind of limit. Otherwise, it's sort of anything goes. Congress can do whatever it wants. Now, the growth of the shadow powers analysis has tended to narrow the permissible scope of congressional regulatory power. So it's a limitation, it's a technique of limiting the overall quantum of congressional power. Now, my critique of what the court's doing, another way in which it's shadowy, right? We don't really like shadowy things. We may like talking about them, but it's not doctrinally the most salutary effect. So my critique isn't about the direction of the court's analysis. I'm not saying the problem here is they're striking down federal statutes. My problem, my critique is not about this ultimate quantum of congressional power issue. My critique is that the rise of this species of analysis is doctrinally unprecedented, although not presented as such, it's, and it's functionally unhelpful. It makes it very difficult to know when do we think Congress will overstep its boundaries and when won't it. It doesn't really set meaningful standards for how federalism should operate in practice. Another problem is the novelty here. So this is another interesting thing in a court where the majority often adopts an originalist um, modality of interpretation, yet here they are, I would argue, doing something very novel doctrinally with how they're using all of these um, precedents and indeed constitutional text. So you end up with this situation where there are these kind of solid Article I powers. This is underneath the doctrine as it stands today. You'd really like, if you're Congress, to say, we're regulating under one of our strong Article I powers, like the commerce power. Now, that's strong in a kind of, well, but it has these other issues, but it seems robust. Um, but then these auxiliary Article I powers, like nece necessary and proper, they're a little bit more tenuous, and that's as a result of the doctrine. So in recent doctrine, the focus on the shadow powers has allowed the court to maneuver within its federalism analysis, but in a way that appears to maintain the commitment to this un apparently unmoving baseline. So this is where I would say the originalism comes in with a sense that they cite um, the founders' debates, they cite the Constitutional Convention, and there's a sense that this is an unmoving baseline, nothing's being overruled here, when in fact um, there's actually something going on, it's just more concealed. So they're adjudicating federalism at the textual, doctrinal, structural periphery, and that distorts the doctrine. The good news here is that it's an opportunity to think about a central federalism question, perhaps the central federalism question, which is, is it possible to conceive of the states as having significance while also recognizing Holmes's point in his hammer descent? So, I mean, this was happened at the symposium over and over where people say, well, once you make it an Article I analysis, once you start by asking what are Congress's powers, you've basically said goodbye to any meaningful federalism. There are no limits. And I don't think that's true. Uh, but let me go through some of the discussion of the cases to, to make that point. Okay. So the cases since 2005 are a mixed bag on this, and I think people weren't really sure what was happening with Necessary and Proper, and having started teaching some of this material right after one of these cases, I can testify to that fact. You'd read commentary on Gonzalez versus Raich, 2005, and there was this sense of, let's wait and see where this one goes. So that's the case where um, the court upholds Congress's regulation and criminalization of medical marijuana, even when it was approved by the states. And that's still a good precedent, even though then there's this question about enforcement that we have now. Um, so that's 2005. And in Raich, Justice Scalia wrote a concurrence um, that really puzzled people at the time. And I'll talk a bit more about it, but it basically started this necessary and proper um, shift in the doctrine. 
Then there were cases in 2010, there was a case called U.S. versus Comstock, where the Supreme Court upheld federal civil commitment of sex offenders who were already in federal custody, citing the necessary and proper power. And this is when people started to think, oh, there's a necessary and proper body of doctrine. And you know, if you like the Marshall Court and McCullough in the 1800s, you would of course think, cool. Uh, that's fun, because we get to talk about these cases. But there was also a doctrinal question of, where's this coming from? Is this new? Is this old? How do we think about this? Then, in 2012, the healthcare case, NFIB versus Sibelius, really brought this out. So the Supreme Court upheld the individual mandate provision of the ACA um, under the taxing power, so that's under one of the shadow powers, but not the commerce power and not the necessary and proper power. So they really delineated among these different Article I powers. And then finally, this case in 2013 that is less discussed, U.S. versus Kebido, where again the court upheld federal post-court martial sex offender registration requirements. So it was a lot like Comstock, where you had um, people who were already in some sort of federal custody, and the court said, yeah, you can extend their, their confinement or their commitment under these federal statutes. So those were the recent cases. And then, of course, the original necessary and proper cases here in the background, McCullough versus Maryland, 1819. So in McCullough, of course, the court upheld the constitutionality of the Second Bank of the United States as a valid exercise of congressional power. McCullough, though, is both the source of a lot of the doctrine and a source of a lot of the confusion that we now have. So in McCullough, Chief Justice Marshall sketched this very broad but not unlimited necessary and proper power and he described it at times as an incidental or implied power. So, you know, you, everyone probably has seen this. You sort of read the shorthand of McCullough, and it's, well, they can establish a bank. Well, really? Where's the power in Article I to establish a bank? It's not exactly in there, but, you know, if you add up the power to regulate interstate commerce, armies and navies, coin money, crimes, where are the crimes? Well, okay, they're kind of in there, too. But then Congress can establish the bank. So... It shaped subsequent doctrinal developments in profound ways. Now, it's possible to read Marshall as saying that these primary powers relevant to the execution of the bank, or the establishment of the bank, so again, commerce, taxing, war, raising armies and navies, necessarily include the powers of their execution. And this is the real implied powers point. Note, we have not even gotten to the necessary and proper clause. So on this view, and I think this was Marshall's view, even without the necessary and proper power being expressly listed in Article I, Congress had the power to execute its enumerated powers. And so Marshall and others at the time, you can find evidence and sources where people say, this is basically a restatement of what we know to be a common law principle that a power necessarily implies the means of its execution. Late 18th century common law jurisprudence easily conceived of primary powers as containing this power to execute. So this was unproblematic to Marshall and many, but it did the very fact that it was somewhat un, that it was unproblematic led them not to articulate it in a way that we might now find helpful. Now the Constitution makes that principle explicit in the Necessary and Proper Clause. So this is why uh, I think McCullough sometimes it's puzzling. Where's the implication? It's right there in the text. Well, before he even got to Necessary and Proper, Marshall said this is all permissible. Necessary and Proper is a an explicit, Aquila Mars refers to it as sort of a, it's like a restatement or a ratification of what's already there as a power. So for much of the early 20th century, um, the necessary and proper power made regular appearances and relatively uncontroversial appearances in Supreme Court doctrine operating in tandem with the commerce power. And this is something we've uh, we don't spend a lot of time on these days, but there are, there's case after case where the Supreme Court upholds congressional regulation, and then it sort of blurs the commerce and the necessary and proper in a way that today we would think you can't do. So here's you know, a couple of examples. Um, there's an important line of cases upholding congressional regulation of railroad, railroad rates. There's a line of cases about milk prices and labor standards where they don't separate the commerce and the necessary and proper analysis. So the court discusses regulations of interstate commerce, um, but then when they get to the always tricky question of intrastate regulation, they say things like, 
the regulation is upheld, and you think, why? It's not inter interstate, it's intrastate. And the court says, it's an appropriate means to attainment of a legitimate end of executing the commerce power. Now, they don't cite necessary and proper. So again, the citation norms of earlier Supreme Courts, that's a different topic. This is not that long ago. But they don't say, oh, now we're in necessary and proper land. They use this language that's actually somewhat interesting, necessary and appropriate, they often say. I guess appropriate sounded better than proper. Maybe it was less limiting. Um, it's un there's sort of precedent for using both. But they talk about it as, yeah, of course Congress could establish this kind of means to reach its constitutional end. So you see in these 1920s, 30s cases, conceptual melding of the two types of power. And that goes on into the New Deal era and beyond. It's a doctrinal problem, though, for us because now we look back and we think, oh, Given what's happened since 2005, it, it's important to separate necessary and proper from commerce. And now, how do we unravel which power was doing the work now that we think of them as distinct? So if you look back at these, the milk cases, Wrightwood Dairy, and it's all just sort of um, melded together in a way that Justice, Chief Justice Marshall would have found familiar, but that today I think we, would find, we do find hard to unravel. So OK, now the recent cases. So Raich was the one I mentioned with medical marijuana, and that's 2005. Since then, the court has really highlighted a series of um, doctrinal consequences that follow from Marshall's, you might say, cleverness, or you might say opacity, or both, in McCullough. So what do I mean by this? Well, in McCullough, Marshall, again, uses this implied powers language suggesting maybe you don't even need necessary and proper to establish the bank, but luckily we have necessary and proper, he says. And Marshall uses this analysis to support this idea of federal power as, as he puts it, supreme within its sphere. So once you identify federal power as operating properly, it has to be supreme within its sphere. And this is a statement about the enumeration principle. It's also a statement about the union as they understood it. More recently, um, so here's another take on necessary and proper. Justice Scalia in 1997 in the Prince case referred to arguments based on the necessary and proper clause as the last best hope of those who would defend ultra vires congressional action. So that's a little different. <laughs> that sounds a little bit like you can try it if you want, but people will be very skeptical that you are now skating on the thin ice of something beyond enumerated power. So why does this conceptual uncertainty about especially the necessary and proper clause, but there's a related species with general welfare, why does this matter? Well, it matters because of how it interacts with judicial federalism as a whole. So I would, I argue that in periods of judicial deference to congressional legislation, under the primary powers. And the classic case example of this is between 1937 and 1995. Congress is pretty deferential, sorry, the court's pretty deferential to Congress. In those periods, the fuzzy status of the necessary and proper power is difficult to discern. Maybe it gets expanded a bit as the commerce power expands, so does the necessary and proper power. But in periods of intensified judicial scrutiny of this legislation, there's a very different result. And we see this today with a discussion, again, the return to the congressional power side of the federalism equation, a concern that we're looking at something like, as Chief Justice Roberts termed it in, in a recent opinion, a federal police power. So we don't want that. There's no constitutional basis for thinking Congress has a kind of freestanding policy-making power that has to be, it has to be under one of the enumerated heads of power. But there's this concern, again, about the overall size of congressional regulation. Um, so in periods of intensified judicial scrutiny of federalism, and we're in one now, there's a different result uh, because of the status of the necessary and proper clause. So when the court narrows the commerce power, as it has done since 1995, the relationship between that primary power and the auxiliary necessary and proper power matters a great deal. Okay, so let's look at Raich. This is the kind of original text on this. So in Raich, as I mentioned, Justice Scalia concurred. So the court upheld the Federal Controlled Substances Act and said, even though California has this medical marijuana statute, the federal act criminalizing uh, possession of even small amounts of homegrown marijuana still stands. So Justice Scalia concurred in this concurrence that people read and reread and have continued to reread. 
And in this concurrence, Justice Scalia recast much of the 20th century commerce power doctrine as turning, in fact, on the necessary and proper power. So he says, in lots of situations, this is, it's obviously Congress is regulating under its commerce power when you're talking about railroads, or you're talking about instrumentalities of commerce, or you're talking about things actually moving across state lines. But in the regulatory area of activities that substantially affect interstate commerce, Justice Scalia said, the real source of Congress's power there is actually the necessary and proper clause, not the commerce clause. And this is the one that, for a while, people, people didn't quite know what to make of this. Um, there was this sense of, what's Justice Scalia doing here? There's, some, there's something he's kind of setting out here. It's not entirely clear from this case. But it does seem to suggest that the necessary and proper power, on the one, has, it, on the one hand, is potentially expansive, because it justifies all of this intrastate regulation. On the other hand, there's a sense that it's a step removed from a sort of real congressional power. It's questionable in some way. So the first response to Raich, and this was in a lot of the commentary, was is Justice Scalia opening up a broader reading of the necessary and proper power? And a lot of people felt like that couldn't be right because his general uh, kind of take is not to expand congressional power. But even before the healthcare case, I remember having conversations before that case was decided here in the hallways and elsewhere, and, and commentators and academics saying, well, it seems like it's just race, intrastate market, in, in healthcare, interstate market that the interstate activity is connected to, broad reading of necessary and proper, and then the Supreme Court in, in the healthcare case said, no, it, it's taxing power, but not the necessary and proper power. So in subsequent cases after Raich, other justices picked up on this necessary and proper analysis, they applied it in other contexts, and they used it to uphold congressional regulation. So it looked like a body of necessary and proper doctrine was developing for the first time since McCullough. And again, it was kind of doctrinally interesting, it was exciting to think, oh, there are areas of doctrine that ebb and flow, and we're, we're seeing the return of one. But it was still pretty unsettled. So then came these other cases that I mentioned, Comstock in 2010 and Kebido in 2013. And in Comstock in particular, this is again the one about ongoing civil commitment of people who have finished their federal prison terms. So the court upheld the ongoing civil commitment, and here was the argument, the court said, we are relying on the necessary and proper power in upholding this federal civil commitment for persons convicted of federal sex offenses. And Justice Breyer, writing for the court, says, the statute is a valid extension of Congress's authority to establish federal criminal law. Now, you press on that one a little bit, of course, and there's no enumerated power to establish federal criminal law. So now we have these layers of implied powers, and there was a lot of resistance from other quarters of the court to this, and basically saying the chain of implied powers can't extend infinitely. So if you're saying this is implied from an implied power and ultimately the power to establish federal criminal law, which no one really questions, um, which rests on some combination, again, of of the commerce power, the taxing power, the levying war, and, and so on. Um, so Justice Breyer basically waves this away, and he says it doesn't matter how many layers of implied powers you have. This bothers people um, then and still. Justice Kennedy concurred, and he said, I think helpfully, but he said the analysis under necessary and proper doesn't depend on the number of links in the congressional power chain, but on the strength of the chain. So there is a sort of metaphysics of the strength of the chain, but not the number of links. But you kind of get it, that he's saying, look, there's a strong chain here connecting Congress's authority to establish federal criminal law um, to permit ongoing civil commitment. And the hook the court looked to here, and then in the subsequent case, Kebido, also about um, federal um, sex crime statutes, was something about a nexus between the prisoners being held in federal custody. So they almost shift to this idea of, well, does there have to be some federal nexus? Is it interstate? Well, we, there's a person who's being held in federal custody. So it actually is attaching at the level of the body of the individual, which I think is very unlike a lot of areas of the doctrine. I mean, you're not saying here, well, this is a separate um, offense against the, the interstate federal criminal law, nothing like that. It's this idea that the person's already in federal custody, so they themselves have connections to federal power. 
Um, so there's this area now of these necessary and proper cases about, again, individuals already in some form of federal custody being held extensively. But the interesting thing in Comstock, two, two interesting things. First, Justice Scalia dissents from what you could argue is his own necessary and proper revolution. And this is when people really, more symposia start brewing. What's, what's going on here? Uh, so Justice Scalia and Justice Thomas dissent, and they say, look, the connection to the, in, any enumerated power is just too attenuated here. Um, so then people really are stumped, right? There's the sense that whatever he was doing in Rach, it seems like it's done now. Um, but it's not done because Kebido and these other cases, so now there's this body of necessary and proper law about individuals held in federal custody. And it's this, in some ways, this, this byway of the doctrine. On the other hand, it goes to this question about how do we think of necessary and proper and the other shadow powers, the general welfare powers, in connection with the enumerated powers. And they seem like they are inferior in some way. So the final point that I'll make on that is that there's doctrinal distortion caused by the shadow powers analysis. And you can see this in the healthcare case as well, that the court, in its opinion on the individual mandate, went through in separate parts the commerce power. And they say, no, it doesn't satisfy the commerce power, um, the commerce clause. Well, what about necessary and proper? So as an artifact of everything that had been going on since 2005, the court actually had a separate section of the opinion focusing on the necessary and proper power, even having already decided the commerce power. Now, they do sort of say, well, we've already decided it doesn't fit under the commerce power, but now that we have a body of necessary and proper doctrine, let's look at this. No, it's not necessary and proper either, even though, again, think back to Scalia and Raich, a lot of people said, well, a local market in healthcare is obviously connected to an interstate market we should care about that. And the court says, no, it's too, it's too attenuated. So the final piece of this that I think is really interesting is you can see the shadow of the commerce power doctrine controlling when and how the necessary and proper doctrine comes in and comes out of the doctrine. And this is most evident in Comstock. So again, federal civil commitment. At oral argument, everyone circles around the commerce power. Well, we know we're kind of talking about necessary and proper here, but gee, what about the commerce power? Can we just think about that for a minute? There seems to be this desire on the part of the justices to think about it, and they keep pushing the advocates to talk about this and say, is it an analog? Is it distinct from necessary and proper? Do we have to uphold both, or could we just do one? So Justice Kennedy pressed then the Solicitor General, Elena Kagan, to make the commerce power argument for the civil commitment statute. So Justice Kennedy says, "Why you're not making the commerce power argument. Why isn't the government making the commerce power argument? Trap, I think, probably, if a justice is sort of saying, here's an easy argument for you. Why don't you make it? Uh, and Justice, uh, then Solicitor General Kagan says, the government has never argued the commerce clause here, and it hasn't done so because of the Morrison precedent. So there's this sort of very careful language, and the Morrison precedent is U.S. versus Morrison 2000, which along with Lopez um, really said, look, Congress's commerce power is, is limited. The court will strike down statutes. And Morrison was about the Violence Against Women Act. So even when they're pressed on it, the government, the Solicitor General's office says, I, I mean, I read that as a statement of, we might like to make the commerce power argument. We might think this is a better argument, but we just know it is a loser because we don't want to ask the court to overrule Lopez, Morris, and these cases that stand for limits on the commerce power. So the government in Comstock doesn't challenge those cases, and the court upholds the regulation under necessary and proper, but it creates this very strained result in the doctrine where um, there are these, I mean, this happens in other areas of constitutional doctrine too, where there's sort of a precedent out there for, for lots of logistical litigation strategy reasons. People don't want to challenge it. They make arguments under other areas. And it creates these kind of interesting doctrinal results where you might think this is not a natural power under which to situate this congressional regulation. And that's, that's where it stands today. I mean, I think it's interesting to think. It's not crazy to think the, um, the government thought. No way do we want to fight Comstock on the terrain of, hey, let's overrule Lopez and Morrison, right? They're just not doing that. And you can understand it. But then you get this tributary area of doctrine of necessary and proper. So this all leads to what I think of as a paradox. 
that Marshall sets out this broad reading of necessary and proper and the general welfare clause in McCullough, a very broad reading of Article I, according to which all primary powers include the means for exercising them. And that makes it possible for later courts to restrict the reach of the necessary and proper power because they say it's derivative of the commerce power and it's a kind of lesser or more questionable type of power. So in doing this, what the recent courts have done is, yes, shrink the permissible domain of congressional regulation, except in these areas like the civil commitment where you already have someone in federal custody, so that seems to satisfy a kind of nexus. But the necessary and proper clause is not at all the font of federal police power that has occasionally troubled commentators. Instead, it's a sub rosa doctrinal hurdle to regulation that we think of it as a lesser power, it's a separate head of power, but as soon as you say this is a regulation under necessary and proper, one response is going to be, boy, that's kind of not a great argument because unless you can point to some nexus of the individual, this looks like a sub, um, sub-article one power, a sort of lesser one in the hierarchy, when in fact the opposite is true. It's an enumerated power, it contains uh, connections to all these other powers, and there's no evidence to think that it's lesser. So another idea about what's going on, too, is that the main doctrine reaches a dead end. How many more arguments can people have in the current, with the current court, in the current political climate, about the commerce power? Maybe not many. And so then what happens is the doctrine shifts to ancillary areas to get purchase on how federalism should work. And maybe in 10 or 15 years, the commerce power will come back. But for now, this is where we have to fight these fights. That's possible. So let me just say one final thing. Um, about how to think about all of this in terms of federalism, which is, so you can, this is obviously potentially a very disheartening story because we think, look, they just sort of shift back and forth from congressional side to state side and they're not really talking about what they should be talking about and and this is a dismal scene for federalism on the whole in the Supreme Court. Well, I think not necessarily if one takes another aspect of McCullough seriously. And, you know, McCullough, I mean, it's early, it's not the founding, but people tend to treat it as if it were on a level with founding founding documents. And so then this is McCullough enunciating an idea of the union. So Marshall talks a lot about this in McCullough. He has this famous line, the government of the union, though limited in its powers, is supreme within its sphere. So American federalism has historically assumed a meaningful scope of operations in which the powers of the union level of government, not the states, will operate. And there are precedents for both the Necessary and Proper Clause and the General Welfare Clause in pre-founding, colonial era, revolutionary era, arguments about centralized legislative authority and the domains in which different levels of legislative authority should operate. So here are some antecedents. 1765, before the war, before the Constitution, during the debate over the Stamp Act, Daniel Delaney, who is a Maryland lawyer and pamphleteer, critiques the Stamp Act. Now, we often think, oh, they just didn't like the Stamp Act. Maybe it was all economics. They didn't want to pay taxes. Surely that was some of it. Or we just think they hated Parliament, hated it, wanted the imperial yoke lifted off them, the Hanoverian boot removed, etc. Well, yeah, some of that's true. But when you look at the actual language they used, it's a lot more nuanced. So Delaney's critique of the Stamp Act was to say, Only the colony's own legislatures, which they had, have the power to levy internal taxes. So we're okay with taxation. It's just where it comes from. And if it's internal to the colony, what we might think of as intrastate, then it has to come from the colonial legislature. But Parliament can tax. It's just those taxes have to be about the interests of the whole empire. So something about, well, we need to tax the... Um, the people who grow certain kinds of crops in Massachusetts because we're thinking about the people who grow those crops in uh, the Caribbean. And and we in Parliament have some sense of the overall uh, nature of the empire. So Delaney says in this pamphlet, may not then the line be distinctly and justly drawn between such acts as are necessary or proper for preserving or securing the dependence of the colonies and such as are not necessary or proper for that very important purpose. So there's often a lot of hand-wringing about, why didn't they tell us in the Philadelphia Convention they used these common words? What did they mean? It doesn't mean everything, or is it just common parlance? Well, here they are using it 
proto-revolutionaries to describe the sphere of parliamentary regulation. And they say the legislation has to satisfy this test of necessity or propriety in order to be valid. But if it does, then parliament can regulate for the whole empire. An empire is a species of union. So another example, John Dickinson writing a couple of years later in 1767 in his letters from a farmer says uh, he invokes the concept of the general welfare of the empire as a permissible justification for parliament to tax the colonies. So he says, using ta taxation to regulate the empire, to restrain the commerce of one part that was injurious to another, and thus to promote the general welfare was fine because it was general. The problem though, he said, was taxation that was just for raising a revenue. That's impermissible, which is also a funny a reversal of what sometimes comes up in modern doctrine where you're, you're taxing to regulate? That's fine. You're taxing just to raise money? Well, no, wait a minute. We don't like that. And that the court kind of has worked through since the New Deal period. So I think this union idea suggests that um, federalism and nationalism, when you're talking about it in the context of American constitutional law, are not actually that far apart, but a reason to adopt the Holmes approach, look at Article 1, look, about, look at whether Congress is really within its sphere, and take the enumeration principle seriously, is that it gives us insight into how a union needs to operate, which also assumes that there will be some things that the union level government and legislature can't touch, things that are internal to the colonies, now states. So I think there's hope. The shadow powers are shadowy, but I do think union may um, give the court or give us some purchase on how to make sense of this doctrine. So I'm gonna stop there, but I'm happy to take questions. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely a delicate balance because I don't think our system would lend itself and we wouldn't like it if they were constantly overruling themselves. Um, that's another reason that Hammer is an interesting case because they did, in the end, overrule it. But what I think is, is um, notable is in the, in the doctrinal area of the commerce power, the court is so resistant to overruling. So other than Hammer, they've never overruled anything, even though, I mean, you know, if you take Con Law 1, you know there's this moment of 1995, U.S. versus Lopez changes everything. Oh, they must have overruled a bunch of things. No, they didn't. They, but they do read it in ways that, that is not always, I think, faithful. So um, Lopez has re-readings of Wickard versus Filburn and re-readings of McCullough that if you go back and look at those cases are not really what those cases said. And I think that's a problem because, yeah, McCullough is a great case. It kind of contains multitudes. But it doesn't, I mean, it talks about substantial effect. It talks about effect. And it says even if the commerce is local, you know, you can regulate. That's not what Lopez says. So I get that they don't want to overrule things and their stability costs and concerns. But I think that a little more clarity and willingness to overrule would probably be helpful instead of wrestling in the categories and then acting like nothing's really happening when all of us read it and think something's happening here. It's not that nothing's changing. Yeah, Katie. Um, you talked a fair bit about the scope of the necessary and proper clause, and I was wondering to what extent have courts or litigants treated uh, justifications for the scope of that and the general welfare clause differently? Um, because it seems like at least on the face of them, the necessary and proper clause is more, um, perhaps more apparently derivative than the general welfare clause. Yeah. And so I was wondering if that is something that has been discussed recently in the recent cases and whether different arguments regarding scope have been put forth with the two different clauses because of that? I think um, when people, so you're definitely right that even if you are doing a textualist reading of the necessary and proper clause, it implicates other provisions of the text. And the general welfare power, taxing and spending doesn't. It, you can just read it on its own and it's pretty clear. And I think part of the I mean, there was this early debate about the general welfare clause in the founding period and then again in the early 20th century where people wondered whether it was like the necessary and proper clause. So was it just a kind of freestanding source of 
Congress to regulate in the name of the general welfare. And that was periodically raised, I think, more as a, as a scare tactic, as sort of no one's discovered it, and there's this, you can just regulate for the general welfare. You know, I, I think no one seriously was making that argument. But there were these questions about, okay, is it, so is it, is it a freestanding power in that way, which starts to sound a little more necessary and proper-ish because it's very broad. Is it that Congress can only, and this was the real debate that the court came back to in the 20th century too, is it that you can only tax and spend if you're Congress in pursuit of other enumerated powers? And that, again, would have made it look like necessary and proper. So you can tax and spend Congress, but only if you tie it to the commerce power, or the raising armies and navies. And in U.S. versus Butler, the court says, no, 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 as long as it's taxing and spending for the general welfare, they can do it. So I think in those early cases, people made arguments about breadth, saying it's like necessary and proper, but also worrying about if it's like necessary and proper, then it's not freestanding, and then you have to fight the enumerated powers fight. Um, now I think, and this comes out a lot in the healthcare decision, that the Supreme Court just sort of says, look, the taxing power is the taxing power. It's pretty straightforward, which of course caused a hundred symposiums to bloom about the taxing power. How come we haven't really looked at the taxing power? And of course, people who tax said, of course we looked at the taxing power. But the spending power side of it came more into um, kind of controversy after the healthcare case too, because I didn't really talk about that, but that's where the Supreme Court said you can't threaten to take away existing health care funds if the states don't do what they're supposed to with Medicaid um, because it's coercive. And so, again, I mean, I think it's, it's shadowy in that there was this coercion inquiry that you could sort of find in earlier cases, but the court brought it back in, in, in uh, Sibelius and then really focuses on it. And I think a lot of people ended up saying, well, but we thought there were lots of spending power cases that had said coercion, but probably not. It's not really a real limit. So yeah, I think um, litigants have made those arguments. I think that the scope question of necessary and proper in general welfare is pretty settled, except that they have this quality of being not the real core Article One powers. Yeah? Well, thank you for the spectacular tour de force. <laughs> Um, well, you're welcome. <laughs> um, I was wondering, you alluded at the beginning to your disagreement with some of the other participants in the Yale Symposium, mm -hmm. namely sort of uh, the notion that uh, states ought to be agents of the federal government, yeah. some, and that you disagree with that. And I was wondering if you could say more about that and sort of how that ties into the scope of this uh, unnecessary problem. Yeah, um, so the... Uh, the scholars who've written the most in that vein, who were also in the con in the symposium, are Heather Gerken at Yale, Jessica Bullman Posen at Columbia, and to some degree Abby Gluck at Yale. But I really think of Gerken and Bullman Posen in this vein, and so their arguments are uh, they are the ones who I think say federalism exists in the service of nationalism, and so they have they've written together and they've written separately. Um, but Heather Gerken's argument is. The states get power from being the servants of the federal government, and they should sort of appreciate that and understand that that's a locus of their power, which is totally different from 18th or 19th century understandings of sovereignty, and that when they carry out federal power, so this is getting into more of Bowman Posen's work, they have the opportunity to resist federal power, they have the opportunity to make federal policy on the ground, and then where Abby Gluck comes in is to talk about um, all the ways in which states actually implement federal programs all the time, and the high-level Supreme Court doctrine doesn't capture any of that. So this is like, I mean, healthcare is a big one, education, um, some immigration and criminal enforcement, where the states, you know, if you just read the Supreme Court reports, you'd think the states are never commandeered, they never carry out federal programs, they are sort of inviolate, and the, this line of scholarship says, well, not exactly. There are plenty of, there's much more cooperative federalism going on than, we should, than, than the kind of court would hold. So I think that's right. And I do think the court, if you look only at Supreme Court doctrine, you do get the sense that cooperative federalism is suspect and it's all laden with coercion and it should never be allowed. And you look at reality and there's actually a lot of it going on. But I'm not as convinced of the state's, have power by being used as the servants of congressional will, just because um, maybe, again, this is being a historian, but I just think there's something essentially 
there's a state quality about the American states. Maybe it's not true in other federal systems. So there are a lot of scholars of federalism who say federalism is really about decentralization. If you look at other systems, why are Americans so hung up on this? Um, but I would think, well, Americans are hung up on it in part just because of the facts of American history. And you don't have to say, you know, states' rights to say, well, the states have some core area and we don't quite know what it is, but it's, um, it needs to be preserved. And the founders didn't tell us what it was in it, but they told us it was important. So yeah, I mean, this is, this is a really, I think all of them are terrific scholars. And the other person in the symposium, Cristina Rodriguez, writes a lot on immigration law. And so it's sort of people coming at federalism from different angles and federalism in practice, which I think is helpful when you are glazed over with the sort of, it's the 10th Amendment. No, it's you know the kind of standard federalism arguments that you get from the Supreme Court. Yeah. Um, if they think you're right about this shadow power, yeah. does this give advocates the opportunity looking at other foreign powers to try to sort of back away from some doctrines maybe necessary and proper and kind of get shadows from to cast on other um, aspects? Do you see that? Do you think that can happen? Are there right contenders? By calling them into question and saying this is a sort of shadowy area? Um, somewhat. I mean, I do think that that foundational shadow power is necessary and proper and taxing and spending in some ways have gone through what you've described where it seems like oh is it like necessary and proper or not well we have to think about that um, there you know there's always this question about will there be provisions that come back into being justiciable or controversial in a way they haven't been and and then will we sort of feel like they are subordinate to other ones that have developed in a robust way I mean there's every now and then People say the Republican form of government clause, you know, that's coming back. Stay tuned. Um, and if it, it may. I mean, people were saying this about when I was in law school, it was sort of news that the Commerce Clause was back. Um, so, and, yeah, it was a long time ago. Um, so I think that the answer is I could see someone making an argument and saying, look, the problem here is that we're using the doctrine in ways it's not designed to because we're avoiding some core question about total quantum of congressional power, about the Commerce Clause. And so then it would be, I think, a fair critique to say, you're doing that. You are using the wrong argument here. But yeah, some of that just depends on the, the play of the doctrine. Okay, that's all we have to do. Okay, thank you very much. This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu.